the Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Welcome to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm here as usual with Andrew Ginter, Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. He's going to be introducing the guest and the subject of today's episode. Andrew, how are you? I'm good. Hello, Nate. Um, Yeah, our guest today is Marty Edwards. He is the Director of Strategic Initiatives at the ISA, the International Society of Automation. He's also the Managing Director of the Automation Federation. And um, listeners, you know, who've been in the, the field for a while will remember Marty as well from his time at the Department of Homeland Security in the United States government, where he was for six years the Director for the ICS CERT. Marty's topic for us today is classifying control systems, consequences, and criticality. Well then, without further ado, here is my conversation with Marty Edwards. Greetings, Marty. Happy to have you on the show. Let's get right into it. The topic of today's episode has a rather unique origin. Uh, Can you explain the Twitter dialogue that prompted the conversation that we're about to have? Yeah, thanks, Nate. Um, yesterday on, on Twitter, there was an ongoing uh, thread that essentially dealt with the topic that not all control systems are created equal. And when you're doing, uh, you know, cybersecurity type improvements or risk analysis assessments to those systems, you really have to carefully consider what the, the use or application that the control system is used in, um, you know, as part of, as part of that criteria. And, you know, people were throwing around different uh, models that have been used in different industries. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, we came to the conclusion that there's really no existing, you know, taxonomy or, or uh, methodology for, you know, systematically evaluating and uh, classifying, you know, what uh, the end purpose of the control system is so that you can then you can use that to apply the, the right security controls. So, Andrew, we're talking today about naming things, right? Yeah, um, not so much naming things as classifying them. And, you know, when you classify things, you, you give names to groups of things. What, what Marty's talking about here is risk. And, you know, if we want to do uh, a thorough risk assessment of an industrial site, there's a lot of stuff to take into, into account. You know, the, the risk assessment reports are long and detailed. And ultimately, of course, we're trying to figure out, given the risk profile at the site, given the consequences, given the exposure of the site to different kinds of attacks, cyber attacks, we're talking about cyber risk here. Um, the question is, how should the site be defended? And you can define, you know, you, you can design, you can pick, pick and choose among the defenses um, very specifically to the very specific needs of the site. But it's a long, painful process. And uh, I think what, what Marty's getting at here is that if you've got a classification system, you can say this site is class A or class B. Then you can put a bunch of standard protections in place and say all class B sites should be protected this way. And it's a it's a shorthand for a lot of the decision process. It speeds up the process of figuring out um, you know, what should we be doing to protect this site? Okay, fair enough. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's hear what Marty has to say uh, about this matter. 
it seems strange to me that there isn't more of a dialogue about this sort of thing. Who's talking about this stuff? And does anyone do it already? You know, there's a number of industries that, that are. I mean, uh, the, the FDA in the United States, the Food and Drug Administration, has a uh, classification system that they use for medical devices. So uh, a regulated medical device that falls under the uh, FDA's jurisdiction falls into uh, one of several different classifications, and, and they uh, have a granular, I guess, or graded approach to uh, the controls that, that they need to put in those devices uh, based on, on application. Um, also, in the, in the safety world, if you look at how safety instrumented systems are designed, you know, there's a, certainly a, a taxonomy there where you go through a fairly rigorous calculations to define the safety integrity level, the SIL rating. Um, but typically, those are based on um, things like mean time to be between failure. You know, how often is a device going to fail? Uh, naturally occurring, kind of in the in the wild, and and very seldom do they take into consideration that in a cyber attack you have an informed uh, adversary that's you know trying to break things intentionally. Right? It's not just a random occurrence. So Marty gave a couple of examples. He gave a, a medical devices example. He talked about safety instrumented systems. Um, there are clear levels defined in safety instru instrumented systems. And so, you know, I think the analogy of sa safety instrumented systems is useful here. But the SIL levels, as they're currently defined, um, talk about the reliability of the equipment. They talk about... Um, mean time to failure so that you can do calculations and say if I've got three pieces of equipment like this uh, doing the same job and one of them fails the other two are still working um, you can do these calculations as to how long the equipment will survive it's answering a different question it's really answering how how many redundant copies of this equipment do I need in order to achieve a certain goal um, the goal that we have in the cyber risk assessment uh, world is the question, how thoroughly protected does this equipment need to be? It's, it's, a, different, uh, it's a different thing. You know, the, the analogy is there, but it's not like we can take safety instrument uh, levels and use them directly here. You reference industrial systems. The original Twitter dialogue that prompted this discussion was about the industrial Internet of Things. Um, my next question for Marty had to do with distinguishing between these uh, these different fields. Now, the, the IoT space is larger than the ICS space and definitely larger than the IIoT space. Uh, do we need to solve this for ICS only or do we need a larger community? I think that's multiple questions. I, I think that the, the dialogue that we were having the other day uh, on Twitter was certainly... Uh, related to the industrial control system space. Um, but if you expand that and look at, you know, whether it's the industrial Internet of Things or the Internet of Things, uh, again, it depends on the application of those devices, right? I mean, you could have uh, devices that were um, in fairly critical applications that were perhaps incorrectly identified as an Internet of Things type of device. So, you know, I, yes, I think eventually... For consumer protections, et cetera, you're going to have to consider those types of things. But, you know, I, I think for now we really need to focus this uh, conversation on those industrial applications. Now, Andrew, I asked this of Marty earlier. Um, 
who who talks about this stuff? Does anybody talk about this stuff? Well, there are um, standards out there. I mean, the French ANSI has got a classification system, um, but you know the the general topic of of network criticality from a cyber perspective is one that I think is is poorly understood. I mean, there there are mentions of it in certain standards, um, but when I hear uh, practitioners, people who who practice cybersecurity for industrial control systems, when I hear these people talking, I don't hear them using any kind of of terminology that uh, suggests that that they're applying these concepts and applying these, in a sense, shortcuts to designing security systems. I don't hear that they're using uh, these shortcuts already. This is a topic that you know, if it's there in the standards, it needs to be. I think it needs to be uh, highlighted. So what you're saying leads into my next question for Marty, which is how people make use of this stuff. Let's say we agree on a classification. How would we use it? So how would the security posture for a safety critical system differ from an equipment critical system or a more modest ICS whose worst case consequence of compromise was, say, a plant-wide shutdown at a multi-billion dollar facility uh, or even something smaller like a shutdown at a smaller facility? Well, that's a, that's a whole series of questions bundled into one, right? So I think that obviously we haven't developed this classification schema yet. So uh, all of these different scenarios are, are good scenarios to consider. You know, and I think that there needs to be some difference or granularity between, between um, for example, a life safety system, something that's protecting human life directly from an equipment protection scheme that's, uh, you know, protecting, um, you know, the health uh, or uh, of, of a physical machine, right? And then there's a number of other applications too. So I guess, you know, if we're going to try to make a one-size-fits-all uh, type of taxonomy, then you're going to have to have, uh, you know, um, a classification scheme that, that can address all of those multiple use cases. You know, the other thing, I, from my perspective, I think you know, simpler is better. I think that perhaps that's why people uh, like the FDA scheme. It's, uh, for example, if I remember correctly, it just has two classifications. You either have a class one or a class two device. Um, so maybe we shouldn't overcomplicate this, right? Maybe we should have a, a, as simple of a schema as we can. Is simpler better? Yes, very much so. The whole point of the taxonomy is to uh, simplify risk assessment and simplify the the decision of which protections should I deploy for a given network. Um, It is possible to to, to simplify too much, though. Um, And the downside of of oversimplification, let's say there's there's only two levels. There's IT networks and there's control networks. When there's only two levels, well, well, when you have a network at a certain level, we need to protect every element of the network as thoroughly as we protect the most sensitive or the most critical element of the network. This is because cyber attacks can pivot. They can You can attack a device and then use that device to attack the next one, a host, a laptop, whatever. You can Attacks can move through equipment. And if you're in a network... Now you're a threat to everything else in the network. So um, if we oversimplify and we don't have enough levels, 
um, we wind up protecting a lot of stuff uh, to a very high degree. Whereas if we can split our networks into a couple of levels, let's say an IT network, a control network, and a safety network, now we apply the stricter safety cybersecurity regime to the safety network. We don't have to apply the safety regime to the larger control network because the safety equipment is not in the control network anymore. So, um, you know, I, he's absolutely right. The whole point here is simplification, um, but the right number of levels seems to be between about, I don't know, three-ish, something like that. So that's, I think that's that's what we're going for here. You know, when we're talking about these sort of uh, large-scale questions like classification, things tend to get a little bit theoretical and sometimes they can get away from you. Um, so with my next question, I asked Marty to give us a real-life example of how this applies in industry in a real way. Uh, let's cut back to him. Now that we've discussed this in more general terms, I really want to, to pin it down with a real-life example. So let's pick an industry. Uh, is there an activity or approach to security that should simply be banned entirely for more critical systems that might be considered an acceptable risk for less critical systems? Yeah, and I, I think so. You know, so so let's let's walk through kind of a hypothetical example. I, I come out of the pulp and paper industry originally. Uh, we have a lot of uh, uh, boiler control type of applications. So you're controlling uh, the flame system in in a boiler, and and there's a number of safety related uh, controls that go around that. Um, usually that are required by your underwriter, right? So if you're insured by Factory Mutual. Or um, you know you have to meet the uh, NFPA requirements. You you have to have certain controls in there. So I think that if you looked at a typical uh, process uh, distributed control system DCS in the pulp and paper mill, if there are tuning changes that are happening all the time to optimize or change the performance of the of the mill, right? You're adjusting uh, PID loop settings, or you're adjusting alarm set points, things like that. Uh, I think when you get into something that's uh, more of a safety system uh, or burner management system, you know, you get into cases where you shouldn't be allowed to make online changes, right? Certain certain changes to the logic or certain changes to how the system operates should only be allowed to be done uh, and when the system is out of service and they are thoroughly tested before going into the, the actual in-service system, you know, and, and I think that uh, we we tend to breach that in modern control system designs with the integration of the safety components into the basic process control system, or we inadvertently tie networks together that um, you know give give attackers a, an easier pathway into the system. So, I mean, my uh, uh, my uh, I guess. Uh, I guess I would say that if you have a safety critical type of application, you shouldn't be allowed to make changes to the to the control logic while it's running. So Marty makes a good point about uh, remote access to safety systems. This was the attack vector that the Triton attack used. What was it a year ago? Something like that. Uh, they pivoted through intervening networks. They came in from presumably the internet, uh, pivoted through the IT network, pivoted through the control network, and wound up launching an attack straight into the safety system at, uh, oh, I forget, I think it was a refinery or something, something nasty. Um, and he points out that, uh, you know, this 
the, the example he gives, safety systems really should not be able to be reprogrammed while they're running. Well, a lot of safety systems have physical interlocks. There's a key on the safety system. If you physically turn the key into run mode, well, now the safety system can run, but you can't reprogram it. If you want to reprogram it, you got to walk up to the device and physically put the key in and turn it back into program mode. And when it's in program mode, it's not running. So you can't turn that key while, you know, the boilers, the, 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 the burners on in the boiler, because if you do, you've disabled your safety system. You've put it into program mode. You've taken it out of run mode. You can only do that when it's safe, when the system is sort of dead and, and, uh, um, benign, um, and you know the 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 Triton attack uh, reprogrammed the safety system uh, while it was running, and so you know I I think this is a, a this is very timely advice. You know, Andrew, few people in the world get as excited as I about physical interlocking. So let's get straight to Marty, who talked more about the matter in his next answer for me. So it's easy to assume that. Only those most large-scale ICS applications have real safety implications. But there are, of course, IoT implications for consumers. Uh, a kitchen stove with an LCD display has a computer controlling those burners. And, you know, hack those clouds that thousands of stoves connect to and hundreds of homes could burn down to the ground in one day. Should kitchen stoves be classed the same as safety-instrumented systems, or is that a uh, bridge too far? I think the answer is obviously not. You know, um, there are many different kinds of applications. And, and so, for example, a safety instrument system with very significant design engineering about the environment that it's running in and the, the process that it's controlling in, for example, a large refinery, uh, is much, much different than a consumer device uh, in, in a home. Uh, now, that being said, uh, you know, I, I haven't actually done a lot of research on, you know, for example, internet-connected uh, kitchen stoves or ranges, and I would hope that you can't turn the surface burners on and off through the um, through the computer interface, right? Uh, I've, I've believe I've seen advertising that you can uh, turn the oven and things like that on and off, and you know, there's there there would have to be certain safety, uh, you know, high temperature. Um, interlocks or things like that around around that. I would hope I'm not uh, an expert, I guess, on consumer uh, device uh, sort of testing. So, you know, I, I think that um, one of the problems we have is that in many cases, you know, the the regulators or the government uh, agencies that have uh, sort of authority over those types of consumer devices uh, simply don't understand the 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 pace that, you know, automation is moving into these areas. So they, they don't take that into consideration. Uh, and, and a lot of times, and we've certainly seen it in the control system world, you know, devices are on the market installed and operating uh, before the regulatory uh, frameworks and landscape can catch up to it. So, you know, yes, there's going to have to be some sort of, um, I think, oversight for, for those types of things, but I think that it's quite frankly too early to tell um, you know, if, if we can bundle them into the same taxonomy, I would suggest we probably cannot. So as soon as you start talking about uh, connected kitchen stoves, smart stoves, you immediately lose me. 
the stove in my apartment was built in 1342, and you have to rub two sticks together to get it going. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, I, uh, you know, in 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 anticipating this this question here, I actually went out and Googled uh, stoves for a while, and there's a whole range of of stuff out there that you can buy. There are remote control stoves, but most of them um, that I could find really weren't controlling the stove. They were controlling the oven, which is safer than controlling the stovetop. People put things temporarily on the stovetop, looking at it, saying it's turned off, it's safe to do this. People generally don't put stuff in their oven and forget about it and then, you know, turn it on remotely. Um, that said, though, oh, and and I did look uh, and ask, so, you know, that's, that's what the remote control software is designed to do. It's always possible to subvert it. But, you know, much more than 90% of the, the, the stoves that I, I Googled there had physical knobs still for the stovetop. They might have electronics and remote control for the the uh, the oven, but for the stovetop, they still had physical knobs, except for a handful of module uh, of models. Maybe you know, maybe two, three out of out of the hundred that I looked at, and they had entirely electronic, uh, you know, turning off and turn uh, turning on the the burners. Um, as well as controlling their intensity, as well as, you know, remote controlling the oven. So my concern is that um, even if the software says you can only turn the stovetop burner on by touching my control on the top, if I come in through the oven control software and, I don't know, find a buffer overflow, I hack the, uh, the, the protocol stack in the oven, and the CPU has the ability to turn on the stovetop, now I've got the ability to activate that stovetop. And, you know, bringing this back into the industrial realm, I see that same range of uh, functionality in industrial devices. So, um, you know, we talked about safety instrumented or sa safety, you know, safety controllers with the, uh, the, the run mode and the program mode. Um, some of those controllers have the key, but all the key does is sets a bit in memory. And it's up to the software to say, I'm in run mode, ignore program requests. I'm in program mode, don't run. If an attacker pivots into that with something like Triton and hacks that software, the attacker's malware doesn't have to look at the bit and say, what mode am I in? The attacker's malware can do anything the CPU can do. And so I think this is the, you know part of the, the, the lesson here is we need these classifications and we need... Uh, you know, rules for what different kinds of devices at different levels of sensitivity, how they should be designed, how they should work. Um, when is it appropriate to use this kind of soft program run key? And when do you really need a hard one? Where do we take this from here? What authorities can implement the sorts of changes that we've been discussing thus far? And who maybe isn't quite yet pulling their weight? Well, as an ex- uh U.S. government civil servant um, federal official, you know, I, I do think that there are roles for uh, state, local, tribal, territorial governments to implement some types of, of uh, oversight or regulations. Right? I mean, uh, people uh, people don't uh, just naturally do things uh, because they want to. Quite often, they have to be uh, forced or told to do it. Um, I think that that should be sort of the baseline, right? So if you go into sort of the whole cybersecurity uh, regulation conversation, 
there should be some minimally acceptable base, baseline um, for, for devices that connect to something that has, can have a life safety or a physical uh, physical safety type of uh, compromise, right, that can affect those things. And, and perhaps that includes consumer devices as well. Now, trying to go through which agency uh, in, in different world governments that has the authority uh, or remit to do that, that's a whole other topic. Um, and I don't even think in the United States, for example, that uh, it's completely ironed out who has authority over even the industrial control system area, you know, speaking as an ex-government official. You know, every time uh, government regulation comes up on this podcast in whatever episode we're playing, uh, I could feel about 25% of our uh, listenership cringing just a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it's the old saw. What's the difference between security and compliance? Security is doing whatever you need to do in order to defend yourself uh, appropriately given the, your, your, your risk tolerance. And compliance is doing what somebody else has told you to do, whether it's useful or not. And so pretty much everybody hates compliance. Um, guidance is much easier to produce. It's much more palatable to uh, the industry as a whole. The trick is that, uh, you know, the, the, the guidance needs to be simple. As Marty said, just a couple of levels. People got to be able to uh, understand it. They've got to be aware that it exists. Guidance that doesn't, you know, nobody knows about is not very useful. Um, and Ideally, guidance would make it clear why we're doing things, not just produce a long list of things you have to do that, that starts smelling more like a, a compliance, a regulation. It's, you know, the the uh, guidance is more palatable and guidance is effective um, if it's if it's simple, if it's justified, if it's easy to understand and easily available. Now, something that's come up as uh, as we've been talking here, in my mind at least, is really we've been talking about words, and words can seem banal in the scope of ICS security more generally. Can you, Marty, boil down for us exactly what the stakes are here to this discussion? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think the stakes are, are, are different in different areas, but uh, I mean, I think you have... Uh, certain industries or certain uh, you know, industry verticals that have have really uh, become aware of the cybersecurity environments and their industrial control systems and are investing and spending money to uh, attempt to shore up the, the security there. Uh, I think, though, that you have many, many, many more industries and, and, and uh, factories and, and manufacturing environments that you know, it's it's just simply too vague or too big of a of a problem for them, and they don't understand where to start. And you know, so from a consequences you know perspective, you know, I I think that with the degree of connectivity that these systems have, and uh, obviously we're only going to increase that amount of connectivity. People want everything on their smartphones all the time. Uh, we have to, we simply have to secure these systems, right? I mean, it's not a question of of if we secure them, it's a question of, uh, you know, when do we get it done? It seems to me that connectivity is one of those things that's going to become more and more a pressing issue as the years go on, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, the trend for 30 years now has been towards greater connectivity. And, you know, the, the, the tricky bit is that all cyber attacks are information. And, you know, every single bit of information can be an attack. Uh, 
a message with a bit in it that's a one saying uh, open the valve um, can be a legitimate message right now and 10 seconds from now when the valve is supposed to be closed and the bit is supposed to be zero resend that same message and that one bit leaves the valve open when it's supposed to be closed and so every single bit can be an attack with increased connectivity we have increased information flows we have increased opportunity for attacks and so you know the 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 problem of cybersecurity is only going to get worse we urgently need uh, simplifying measures to be able to uh, you know apply consistently and and uh, and lock down our systems let's cut back now to the final question i asked marty to wind down our discussion all right any final thoughts, Marty, uh, about what we've spoken about today? You know, um, I, I think that that it, we would be uh, um, remiss not to mention that some of the standards organizations, uh, such as the ISA 99 committees that have, uh, you know, come out with ISA IEC 62443, they are working on this, right? I mean, so there are a number of different agencies, organizations, that are are trying to crack this nut, but um, they they simply you know I don't I don't think we've got far enough down that road yet um, to to get uh, a solution that that fits it that fits everything. And perhaps there's going to be a lot of customization. So I guess I would uh, uh, recommend or ask your listeners uh, to get involved, right? So if if you have some some subject matter expertise in this area. Uh, or if you have a concern that you have systems in your facility that you know everybody's treating the system the same, so the you know the most basic um, benign control system has to have the same level of security as the most critical system in your plant, and you don't know how to how to classify that. Well, get involved. Get involved. Involved with the standards community. Get involved online, and and uh, let's let's see if we can make some positive change happen. So that's a good point. Um, you know, Marty mentioned the ISA and the IEC. The ISA is, uh, again, the uh, International Society of Automation. Their SP99 committee uh, produces uh, a lot of, of standards. The committee then submits those standards to the International Electrotechnical Commission, the IEC, and the IEC publishes those standards as the 62443 series. There's something like, I think, 14 or 16 standards that have either been published or are under development. This is the world's most detailed industrial cybersecurity standard set. Um, and it's all volunteer-driven. The ISA SP99 committees are all volunteers. And so, you know, people complain sometimes that, oh, standards take so long to develop. Well, it's a volunteer effort. And so I very much echo uh, Marty's call you know, the way to speed up standards development is to get in there and, you know, help out. Um, this is, this is how we do things. And, uh, you know, we're, I'm, I'm the, the co-chair of one of the, uh, the, the committees on the, the SP99 effort. Um, and we're always looking for, you know, people to come in and contribute knowledge, uh, write, uh, write up, uh, knowledge others have com contributed and, and edit and, you know, make things happen. So, um, you know, we, we need these these uh, levels of criticality, this taxonomy defined. The only way it's going to get defined is if people get in there and help out. Well, many thanks to Marty Edwards for speaking with me. Thank you, Andrew, for sitting down with me. My pleasure. Always, always a pleasure. 
thank you all for listening. Until next time.